Welcome to the Gospel Culture and Me podcast, a leadership conversation focused on the intersection of culture and the church and how it affects our day-to-day living. My name is Steve Smith. Welcome to episode one. Each week, we're inviting friends and experts in their field to have conversations about topics that the church has historically neglected or maybe just missed the mark over the years. Of course, we didn't start small with episode one. You're in for a treat today with Miles McPherson. That's right, former NFL player with the San Diego Chargers, a cocaine addict turned follower of Jesus, and the founding and lead pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego, which he planted in the year 2000 and has now grown to over 18,000 people each weekend. His new book is called The Third Option. That's what we're talking about today, discussing the pervasive racial division that is so evident in today's culture. He's helping individuals and organizations focus their attention on our similarities rather than our differences and to help us develop honoring relationship with those of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. He's a unique voice on this topic of race. And over the weeks ahead and months ahead, we're going to be bringing you different perspectives and different voices on this topic throughout season one, in addition to so many other topics of culture and the church. For now, here's Ron Zappia's conversation with Miles McPherson on The Third Option. Pastor Miles, thanks so much for joining with us today. I have been so looking forward to this. I got to just be honest and tell you this, man. I have huge respect for you. A uh, big fan uh, as a pro athlete. I mean, drafted by the Rams and uh, then uh, played with the San Diego Chargers. But that's a whole story in itself, just your dedication and commitment to get picked up with the Chargers and all that. As a pastor, um, you know, I'm sure that probably wasn't on your radar when you were playing football that you would be no. leading such a church but but no. certainly God had other plans and uh, and honestly as a leader in uh, you know race and reconciliation with the fresh perspective that you bring so man we're just really grateful to have you on thank you for having me and, and you're right I never would have thought <laughs> Right. Ever would have thought, and it's interesting how how many people are on a journey they have no idea where it's going to end up. Well, we're we're excited to talk to you about uh, the third option, and you know that's been providing so much healing and hope. But just to set the table, give uh, give our listeners a little history and background, because really, you know, all the things that you did beforehand, although we joke, you, you wouldn't have thought you'd been in ministry. It certainly provided a unique perspective and platform for you today. So, give us a little history. Yeah, I grew up in New York, um, four grandparents from Jamaica, West Indies. I have two black grandfathers, a white grandmother, and a half Chinese black grandmother. So I had a United Nations family. <laughs> that is pretty diverse. Yeah. yeah. And uh, my my white grandmother and black grandfather had to go to a different state to get married because it was illegal for them to be married. And where I grew up was all black. I went to school where it was all white for eight years, the first eight years of my schooling. I got harassed because I wasn't white. Then I got harassed because I wasn't black enough because I'm light-skinned. Wow. And so I, had, I it was, you know, not only was this the, the neighborhood and the country segregated, but I was in the middle kind of. And, and when I was eight years old, Martin Luther King was killed. And I remember thinking, what can we do? And fast forward, you know, I go to NFL, played four years, uh, accepted Christ after my second year. My first two years, I was doing cocaine chasing women, just living, living wild. And I stopped doing cocaine in one day and then um, got into ministry right away. I was doing Bible study. Come on, you can't just skip over that, man. One day. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, God, thought, he, he really, he really moved. What, what was it that got you interested in the gospel? I mean, was it you know, some guys talking to you or what was the? Yeah, exactly. There were, there were guys, I had, I had heard the gospel years before when I was 19. And, but I walked away from it. And there were, when I went to the Chargers, there were guys on the team that were Christian. Were, and, and I was drafted by the Rams. So they were, they were strong Christians on every team. And I remember a guy in the Rams sharing with me. His name was Joe Sharon. And <laughs> <laughs> he, came, he came to my room and he brought out a Bible. And I was like, man, what's this dude doing? And, and oh, he, my goodness. And, and, you know, it didn't take, but it, was, it, it hit me between the eyes. So when I went to the Chargers, there were guys on the team you know, sharing the gospel with me, talking about, you know, I shouldn't do cocaine and just loving on me. They were just loving on me. And, and once I, I decided to surrender my life, I stopped doing cocaine in one day. My girlfriend and I got back together 
that day, she's now my wife, 36 year anniversary coming up. Then I started sharing my testimony, started a Bible study in my house with these teenagers, became a youth pastor. Um, and then 16 years later, started the Rock Church. Tell us a little bit about the Rock Church in San, San Diego. I know we um, we actually both started our churches about the same time. I started in 2000 right here in, in the Chicagoland area, at High Point Church. And I know uh, you started in 2000. And man, that thing just took off like a rocket. Yeah, we started in 2000 and we started at San Diego State. And we moved 33 times in that first five oh my years. Goodness. Wow. And what I mean by that, we, we had San Diego State, but... 33 Sundays, give or take, in the first five years, we couldn't be there. So we had to go somewhere else and come back. Sometimes one place in the morning and one place at night. And it was a long road. And um, then we uh, bought a building, moved into that, moved into a temporary building while we built this building. And now we have five physical campuses, one a set of mobile campuses that are pop-ups, you know, uh, and then an online campus. Um, but you know, in night in 2016, 17, I started writing this book called the third option. And it's based on this premise that we live in a us versus them culture. And the, you're either for or against the police. You're either for or against black lives matter. You're either for or against, you're the Republican or Democrat. And, and everything is about my side against your side. And we always feel like we have to have the better argument. And that's a no-win situation. And that's where a lot of believers feel like, you know, I, I got I to gotta outthink and I got to have my reason. And unfortunately, and I will say this to all the Christians watch, watching and listening and all the pastors, be careful that your arguments and your points of view about race are not based on politics, but they're based on the Bible. Please, the politics is an imperfect science. And every, both sides got flaws. Both sides have points. But, the, but we cannot fight that battle. We have to fight the battle of the gospel. And so the culture is us versus them. The third option, which is what this is about, is that we honor what we have in common, that we're all made in the image of God. I mean, we have more similarities and differences. You know, we bleed red. We like to eat, sleep. You know, we're on a journey. We, we love our family. And I can go on and on about the things we share. Yeah, you quote some all kind of, of statistic. You kind of say there's some kind of, in the book, it was like 99% of the things, though, that we have in common, right? Well, that, that were genetic, 99.5% genetically identical. I mean, so, so if you listed all the things that we have in common, we couldn't, it's pretty much everything. I mean, here, even this, a black person and a white person, what they have in common is that they both have a color. White's a color. And so we are all variations of the same thing. And, and so, and we're all made in the image of God, the same God. The image of God in me is not different than the image of God in someone else. So if we focus, it's the third option, that we give honor, value, high value to what we have in common. And if we did that, we would get along a whole lot better. Wow, you know, that is so amazing. And I know you talk a lot about, you know, the verse in Romans about the fact that outdo one another with honor and just honoring people. And that's such a fresh perspective that you have. When you talk about the idea of honorable labels, what do you mean by that? And, you know, what are the dangers associated with, you know, our tendency is to just, you know, put labels on people? Exactly. The Bible says the greatest commandment is to love God with your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor, which is a label. Love your neighbor yourself. If you remember the Good Samaritan, you know, the, the, the Levi went by and all these people go by this, this, this guy who's on the side of the road, but he wasn't one of them, you know? And if the Bible calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, why is there so much division in the church? It's because we relabel people as something less than neighbor. We just say they're immigrant or they're illegal, or they're a thug, or they're white privilege, or whatever we want to call them. And then once we do that, we disqualify them from being loved by us. And so we have to put the term neighbor, brother, sister, on everybody. And if you call them that, you then you will love them through that lens. If you call someone dumb, you can't see them above dumb. You can't see smart. If you call them uh, ugly, you can't see pretty. And all the parents out there, if you call your, your, your child stupid, you're never going to expect anything smart from them. And they're probably going to start to internalize that label and live down to it. 
And so we have to give people labels, especially as believers, sister, brother, anointed, blessed, forgiven. <laughs> you know, I mean, all the, all the amazing labels, child of God. And, 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 and you, when you start to label people and declare that label and everything attributed to that label, when you declare that on someone, you, especially if it's a life-giving label, they will live up to it or they'll live down to it. Wow. That's really powerful. Now, you talk a lot about, uh, you know, we're all made in the image of God. That's for sure. I mean, you and I would both affirm that. But at times, it feels like that can almost be weaponized. I mean, you know, how can we believe this without devaluate the individual experience? We want to make sure we recognize people's different experiences. Yeah. uh, The image of God doesn't mean that we're uh, carbon copies. The image of God means that we have the ability to, to love, to communicate with God, for God, to have a relationship with God, to forgive, to have empathy, and to express the character of God. God is like the most diverse brother on the planet. I mean, <laughs> right. just watch, watch Discovery Channel. My goodness. I mean, right. That, right. that dude has made some stuff that's like, what was he thinking? You know, animals that spit out salt <laughs> sure. crystals and, you know, right. live in some degree weather and all this, the ways the animals made. I mean, so he's creative. And you and I are just part of that creation. But but every single one of us, every single person that that is made the image of God, which means every single person is designed to respond to the love of God. That's the beauty. So no matter what you look like, no matter where you go in the world, and for all of you who travel internationally, you know, you can go to a church halfway around the world, don't speak the language, but the spirit of God is moving and, and it unites us. So that's what we have to realize. Yeah, that's good. Now, I know you've talked a little bit in, at your church, the table of five. I'm just interested in the backdrop of, with your experience, which is so unique in the pastorate, um, how did you come up with that idea of the table of five? Yeah, there was a shooting here in San Diego where a police officer shot an uh, immigrant from Uganda and it was filmed. And, uh, you know, we had a uh, protest for a week and I preached that Sunday. <clears throat> I went to the police station the night of and, you know, I was out there with protest, standing as a police chief spoke to them, standing next to the chief, police chief and got cursed out at by someone, by a protester. So that Sunday I preach and, and there's five chairs around a table. One chair represents the police that shot the man. Another chair represents all the people who believe it was justified because it was videotaped. Another chair represents all the people who believe it was unjustified. Then there's another chair that represents the devil. And the devil's saying, you have to pick one of those two. The other chair represents God. And that, and, and that chair, God said, how well are you going to love the people who don't agree with you? Wow. That's the question. Yeah. That's the question we have to answer. How well can you love and give honor and even serve people who don't agree with you? And so if people are yelling at you or uh, don't agree with you, that doesn't make them your enemy if you're a believer. And it doesn't give you the right to talk about them if you're a believer. You have to love them. Jesus said, love your enemies as your friends. That is the challenge of the church. And that's where the church in general is failing. We have taken political positions. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And so anyway, I did the sermon, did the altar call, and I'm shaking people's hands at the altar. And this guy shakes my hand and he pulls me gently towards him. And he says, I'm the guy who yelled at you the other night. (laughs) (laughs) And so I bring him in the back in the green room with his mom and his mom's going, what's going on? What's going on? He said, oh, mom, I disrespected Pastor Miles. I was mad. And and I got him on video saying that. But it was it was it was such a relief because, you know, I wasn't. You know, I was I was trying to bring peace, right? Sure, so, right. But but that's where that that those five chairs come from. With the reality of what that looks like, I mean, with what we're struggling today, I mean, um, you know, God has really given you a voice. Hey, talk with us about these blind spots because I know that we've all got them. Can you define by what you mean by blind spots and how we can start to understand people's perspectives other than our own? Yeah, blind spot is the gap between your intent and the impact of what you do. Um, It's not knowing what you don't know. So some people will say, I don't see color. Their intent is to build a bridge, but the impact, it it could be a fence because you're telling the person of color that you just invalidated what they are, what they look like and what comes with that color. All the history and the pain and and the culture and the experience 
uh, of that color. You just said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to ignore it. And so though it's well intended, it's the impact is uh, negative. So that's a blind spot. Um, and I think that, uh, and, and by the way, of course we see color because the only time we say we don't see it is when we see it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> two white people don't say that to each other, right? <laughs> and, and by the way, whites of color as well. Remember, culture is us first them. And culture will say white people and people of color as though there's two distinct groups. Well, whites of color. And, and but yet we've been duped to think, you know, oh, that's not a color. Now, I, I get what, how it's used, but it's again, it's how it's used results in division. Um, and if we all just acknowledge that we're all colored differently, and by the way, white people, they're, they're white in the springtime, right. <laughs> but in the summertime, they're either brown or red. <laughs> right, exactly. And when they get cold, they turn blue. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, hey, I'm trying to, I know, I'm, just, I'm trying to get myself a tan in the summertime. So I think nobody is happy with the with the shade. I mean, no, that, that is so true though, yeah. because all of us have blind spots. How would you counsel somebody or help somebody to see, identify what theirs are, so that they can get over it? One way to to identify your your blind spot is simply to ask. Yeah, you know, ask the the people in your in your in your life who are different, have different ethnicity. Ask them: Is there anything you say or do that's offensive? That's racially offensive. Um, remember, you can be racially offensive and not be racist. Um, there are people who are racist. Don't don't get me wrong, but there are people who say racially offensive things but don't realize it. Like when people say, "I don't see color," you know, people say it to me with a smile. They think that they're really saying something good. I'm like. So basically, I'm white like you. I mean, what did you just, you just raced me, right? And, and so you, and I, and I know that they're well-meaning. However, it's still saying, I don't, it's like going up to a woman and saying, I don't see that you're a woman. You know, of course you do. And so to go up and ask people, is there anything I say or do that has offended you or offends other people or jokes I say? Because I want to I wanna be respectful. I want to be honoring and loving. Yeah, that's good. If you can be honest and ask those questions and have relationships that are going to be really to a place where you can say that, I mean, you can learn and grow so much. That's that's really the key. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you mean by, I know in the book you talk a lot about covenantal love versus contractual love and what that looks like and, and, and the differences there. The reason people get divorced is because at some point it became a contract. And the contract was, you do this and I'll do this and someone did something selfish. And so when you have contractual love, it means that I'll love you if, if you please me, if you do X, Y, and Z, and when you fail your end of the bargain, the contract, I'm out. Covenant love is I'm just gonna love you no matter what. And that's what Jesus did, that's what God did. I mean, imagine if God said, I'm gonna love you if you're, if I'll love you if you're perfect, well, we lose. I love you if you only sin three million times. We lose. Right, <laughs> so, right, you know, right. If he if he had any kind of contract with us, um, and so his his covenant though says I I love you unconditionally, and 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 how when you mess up whatever I'm gonna work walk with you on your journey. Which by the way, we talk about we all have something in common. One of the things we all have in common is that we're all on a journey. Everybody's on a journey. And, and, and so you're either going forward or backward. And so covenant love is where I just decide to love you. That's why it's important not to fight like the alligator in the, oh, I don't think I told you that story, but have us versus them, but to say, I'm going to love those people who don't agree with me, no matter what, no right. matter what. Right. Well, you have a unique and diverse church, you know, in San Diego. I know a lot of church leaders, myself included, are striving for a more diverse church, a more mm-hmm. diverse congregation. Uh, share some of the ingredients that foster that type of church diversity that uh, many pastors are seeking in their own congregations. <laughs> you know, people ask me all the time, and I don't know if I have a good answer. Um, <laughs> That's all right. Try it out. I, let me let me hear it. <laughs> You know, when I, it, every, when I just started the Bible study at my house with the kids, we had nine nationalities. When I was a youth pastor, we had, I, I, stopped, I didn't count. It was just every, everything that was in San Diego. So everything I've always done has been diverse. And I, I believe it's probably from the diversity that I have because people can identify with, you know, themselves in me. That's what I would assume because we never really, you know, I have a Chinese, I have Chinese, black, white, 
you know, Scottish and, and all, all these nationalities. I mean, I talk about different nationalities all the time um, and have had experiences with all kinds of people. Then I play football. So, and then our leadership has always been diverse. The worship teams have always been diverse. So um, uh, now we just continued that. We, you know, when you come to our church, you see um, the United Nations in our school and our preschool and our staff on our worship team. If there's one thing we've done is try to love everybody, every zip code. And when you love people from all over your city and every zip code and every neighborhood, and they start coming to your church and you keep loving them and they go love, you end up with this diverse church. I mean, that's probably the most basic foundational truth. And if you have relationships with people from every zip code in your area, um, uh, you're going to start to see diversity in your church. Yeah, that's really good. And I, I think, you know, just as I'm looking on and a fan of what you're doing and out there, I mean, um, you know, it, it's the real deal. You've, you're just living in the pasture at what you do in your life. And I think that really br- builds a lot of bridges with a lot of different kinds of groups. So I don't, I don't, I think that's a great answer. I don't think you need a good, <laughs> you have to, you know, stop apologizing for that. Cause I think part of it is, I think just God's blessed you in the way you've uniquely brought so many diversity into your own congregation because of the way you've lived your own life. So that's really a, um, a really good testament to what the Lord's done through your ministry and through you. Hey, your answer might be a little controversial here, and we're, we're okay with that here at the Gospel Culture and Me because we don't want to try to please everyone, but rather put the gospel back at the center. And So can you speak first to white Christians and then black Christians what do you want white Christians to understand about this conversation? What would you want them to understand? And then, you know, on the other hand, what would you want black Christians to understand about this conversation on race? Yeah, I think that uh, to white Christians, and I, um, one, the book is not designed to attack you. And I think you should ask somebody if they read it, did they feel attacked? And, and let them tell you. But it wasn't written to attack anybody. It was written to bring people together. Um, uh I can get a couple of stories. Whenever you hear, and, and we can even get, if you want to get controversial, let's go even deeper to white privilege because um, let's just go right there. Yeah. If you think of those two words, everybody has privilege. Everybody has privilege. Um, the question is, what is the nature of your privilege and what do you do with it? And in every culture around the world, the dominant culture is the culture in charge. Just, it makes sense. And the dominant culture, you if you're part of the dominant culture, you have an advantage over the minority culture or the, or the, or the subservient culture. And not necessarily that that culture is serving you, but you have a dominant culture or a minority, majority culture and a minority culture. And so when you're part of the majority culture, you have an advantage over the minority culture because the majority culture sets the rules. That's what the privilege means. It doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean you all have a lot of money. It means you have, if you walk in a room with someone from the minority culture and you're in a room with the majority culture, you will be favored. Now, flip the side, if you, and in my book, I invited several white people to go to a place where they were the only white person. I call it walk in my shoes field trip. And so if a white person goes to all black neighborhood, you don't have the privilege anymore. <laughs> you don't have the advantage. Now the black right. people in that neighborhood have the advantage over you. And the reason I ask these people to go is so they can feel what it feels like to be the other. And so I would say to white and black and, and to, to your question is that for the whites to step back and realize that you have a different experience uh, because you are the majority culture, and probably I don't, I can't speak for all of you. Most of where you go, the majority of the people you see are like you. And when you see a black person, they're usually the minority. And and so, if you're never the minority, or very rarely, you don't know what that means. And and so to step back and realize that's a blind spot that you don't even know what you don't know, and to give the benefit of the doubt that you don't know what it means. And, and for the minority culture, to, to, I mean, we get that. We live that every day. Uh, then we have to say they don't know what they don't know. And so there's, you know, I, I, one of the things that a lot of blacks have said, and we've, we have these conversations now, we always have to keep educating. 
And because either the people we talk to are white, don't know what they don't know, or they've heard it many, many times, but it's not their experience. So they really don't believe that was telling the truth. And so I think if you're, especially for the believers as, as white believers is to develop relationships with blacks, uh, Latinos, Hispanics, Asians, people who are minorities and from different socioeconomic experiences and don't think because you know four or five white people, black people, or Hispanic, that you know everybody, because no one speaks for everybody. And, 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 and realize that you're on a journey to do two things, love God and love your neighbor. That's what God requires of you. What does he require of you? Uh, and, and, and so uh, if we can focus on that and stop being political and letting politics give you an out to not address the issue, it's uncomfortable. Exactly. It's been uncomfortable for 100 years. I mean, it's uncomfortable still to this day. George Floyd, I mean, I cried probably every day for a month after George Floyd was killed. I'm a grown man, I'm 60 years right. old crying. And people are telling me it's not that racism is not real. Why am I crying? Right. And so the Bible says in Galatians 6 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, if you ignore that there's a burden and, and don't even want to acknowledge that it exists, how are you going to carry it? How are you going to love people? And and so I would I would say we have to develop relationships with each other if we're going to solve it. Miles, many of our listeners to this podcast are young leaders or church leaders, marketplace leaders. What would you have to say to those who feel stuck in the two polarized options that we talked about? I mean, you got the left versus the right, conservative, right. liberal, you know, right. black and white. What would you say to those listeners? Get educated. This book is one of those things. But get educated because one of the reasons we feel stuck is we don't have the information. And one of the reasons people get stuck in their life, they don't have information on how to write a resume, how to develop a business, how to be a good husband or a good wife. When they get the information and they apply it, it works. And so this book is one of the resources that can inform you on how to see and understand these principles and how to live them out um, the e-course that I, that I wrote, I piloted it with the police. And I did several sessions with, with law enforcement here in San Diego because they're the most sensitive to this. And so, again, that's designed to take people not only through a Q&A, but also role plays where they get to practice and put into practice a lot of the principles I'm talking about. But the key is get educated. If you're just trying to, I got, I got to come up with a better argument to win, right. that's the wrong angle. Right. Um, the Republican Party, Democrat Party, they're both human designs. They're, they're, they're flawed. I'm not, I, and, and so if, you, if that's your foundation, you're going to fail the gospel. And, and I'm not saying, hear me right, the, only the gospel can, can do what the gospel does. And so make sure that your views are based on the gospel, of which what this book is. There are activists who say, here's my side. And then another activist will say, here's my side. We're not called to only be activists, but to be prophetic, which is to rise above the, the view of the activists and say, here's God's point of view. Yeah, that's good. That's really powerful. Hey, what have we missed in this conversation that you'd like to share? Is there anything that, uh, that's, that's on your heart? You know, I think because we all do see color, um, every time you have a conversation, you're having a race conversation even when you're talking to yourself, you know what you are. And so what we should do is have a race consultation. And here's why. That's good. If you were to meet, and whoever you are watching, if you were to meet a, um, a, a Chinese person, I'll just say Asian, and you're not sure, but in your mind, you're thinking, oh, is he Chinese, is he Japanese, is he Korean? Is he? Sure. You don't know, right? right? I'm, I'm, I'm saying you don't know. I'm not saying you really don't, but just hypothetically, you don't know. Well, you're trying to figure it out. That's a race conversation. It doesn't mean that's racist. It's racist if you go, oh, he's Asian. He must be good at math. Now, that's racist, right? But if, if you have these in, this conversation in your head, before you have that conversation with your mouth, Put those assumptions aside and have a race consultation where you let the person disclose to you who they are. And, and if when you meet people who are from different countries, they don't speak English, they're immigrants, they're at the airport working and taking your bags and, or, or cleaning your hotel and you just want to look down on them, before you judge them, have a race consultation 
and ask them about their family, ask them about their journey, and you will realize, man, they're just like me. You know, we had these immigrants walking to the border and, you know, several months back, and there's all this hoopla about them coming to invade our country and all this stuff. And without the politics of crossing the border, let's just put that aside, because that's not the reason I'm bringing the story up. But I just want you to think about this. What would it take you to put everything that you own, everything of what you own on your back and your kids and start walking? Imagine how ridiculously scary and impossible that would be. Now, my guess is that nobody watching this would ever have to do that right. in your life. <laughs> you got people exactly. you can call up, you got a car. I mean, yeah. I mean we, got, we got so many advantages, right? right? Exactly. And so, so, so let's just put this in perspective. This is a human being or a parent sending their daughter over the border because they're going to be made a prostitute by the gangs. I mean, just, just now, again, take the politics out, please. These are people made in the image of God. And as God looks at that, God's not looking at that as a Republican or Democrat issue. He's looking at that, man, those are people made my image and they're being sold, they're being, they're being drugged, they're being raped, and it breaks his heart. And we as believers, if we can't go there first, man, I'm telling you, you better be careful naming Jesus as your savior. Yeah, that's good. Wow. Hey, what's the third option challenge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. third option challenge is make a video and tell Tell someone who doesn't look like you why you love him. You know, just say, hey, look, this is my friend. He's white, black, Asian, whatever. And here's why I love him. Here's what I love about him. And let's show the world that we are more loving and there's more people out there that love each other than not. Wow, that's awesome. Well, Miles, we're just thankful for you to take uh, time out of your busy schedule to talk with us today. Uh, where can people find you online and learn about your book, The Third Option? If you go to milesmcpherson.com, milesmcpherson.com, you can get the e-course, the similarity training, I call it. It's not diversity training, similarity training, milesmcpherson.com. And then you can get the, get the book. And, and, and I would tell you, uh, it's a journey. It's a journey that you're on. And this book and the e-course is going to take you on a journey um, uh, on how you can honor and, and break down the barriers between you and other people. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks. Thanks so much, Miles, for joining us today. Really appreciate you and all that uh, you're doing. God bless you. That was Pastor Miles McPherson of The Rock Church in San Diego, California, talking about the third option. Well, hey, now's a part of our show where we bring it all home, so to speak. We're pulling up some chairs around the kitchen table with other faith leaders to talk to discuss, even to debate or disagree with one another. I'm joined by Pastor Derek Puckett. He's the founding and lead pastor of Renewal Church in Chicago, Illinois. Lena Abujamra of Living With Power Ministries. And of course, Pastor Ron Zappia. He's the founding and lead pastor of High Point Church in the Chicagoland area. We're going to do this. We're going to get their take on what our guests have to say each and every episode. I'm Steve Smith, and here's our conversation surrounding Miles McPherson's The Third Option. Well, hey, this is a part of the show where we like to say we bring it, we bring it home. We're bringing it home <laughs> around the table, and like that. uh, that's where all the conversations happen, right, in the home. You, you, you know, if you got little kids, I got some little kids, so we just gather them around the table, and you do the little family convo or at the holiday meal where things get, uh, get heated. Hey, so thankful to uh, be joined right now for this conversation with Lena Abujamra and uh, Living with Power Ministries. You're the founder. That's right. And, uh, and, yes. and I've learned it's not Abujamra, it's Jam. It's the jammer. Is that right? We're Come gonna on. We're going to jam some things down your throat. <laughs> you know, well, that's I, what we're going to do for the next 25 Steve, minutes here. I, I Steve, yeah, I've no. given up on trying to pronounce Lena's last name a long time ago. And I just said like this. She's like Elvis, and she's like Cher. She doesn't need a last name. Just one time. Just that's Lena. It. That's Lena. There that's we it. go. Of course, Pastor Ron Zappi, a founding senior pastor of High Point Church. And finally joined by Pastor Derek Puckett. He is a founding lead pastor of Renewal Church here in Chicago. 
Chicago, awesome yes. multi-ethnic church. Hey, we just yeah. thought for yeah. the first episode here, we would we would just start with the topic that, uh, man, we're all probably guilty of it. We're sticking our foot in our mouth. We don't know how to have this conversation. We don't know what to say. Then sometimes we don't know what to say, so we don't say anything. And so yeah. uh, we're talking about race. We're talking about justice. We're talking about how to have this conversation in the church. And we just heard Miles McPherson's uh, opinions, his thoughts on it from his book, The Third Option. And uh, obviously he laid out for us, you know, just this idea that, man, there's so many people, it's either, you know, you're for me or you're against me, you're either on my side or their side. Then he kind of made some controversial statements on, you know, hey, let's not see race at all uh, through a political lens, right. but we see it all through a, a biblical lens. I want to talk about that a little bit. He talks a lot about the Imago Day and, and being made in the image of God. Here's what I'd love to just kind of dive in. Maybe Derek will start with with you. As I know we all agree that all people are made in the image of God. That's not anything any of us would question. But when there's a group of his image bearers that have been oppressed throughout the centuries, how, how, do, we, how do we reconcile that image of God, recognizing that, that there's been a, a subset of his image bearers that, that have been treated unjustly? I think that the... Uh when you say image bearer or you jump too quick to image bearer, and I love everything Miles McPherson's talk talked about, but it's just the, the fact that culture actually does matter. And we're seeing that today. We're seeing that history matters. We see that um, the matters of injustice and things that have happened throughout uh, our time as Americans, it, it all matters. All of that comes into this. And you can say, well, okay, God didn't create us that way. But if you just say that and then you skip over all the sin and the different dynamics that have led up to today that have formed uh, matters of race and injustice and things in America, then you're essentially becoming ignorant of in this whole conversation. You know, so we say like, well, I don't see color. I, I, I just see you as an image bearer. OK, well, you didn't you don't see me then. And then you're also ignoring everything that I bring to the table as a as a black man and the struggle that I've gone through and what's happening here in America, what's our history about? And that root word of ignore ignorant is ignore is ignore. You know, so it's not even that you're stupid. You're just you're ignoring the systemic injustice, the the racism in this country, the the narrative of America. In reality, all of us, if we truly say we're going to be this melting pot context, that doesn't mean that we come to the table and we're like, okay, we're all the same. No, we come from all these different backgrounds. And if we want to come to the table and have a real conversation, then we got to acknowledge different backgrounds. And we also got to acknowledge um, the, the brutality or the brutal history of slavery and what's made America, America and who we actually are. And so as I come to the table, don't just see me as an image bearer, see me as a black man. And also try to learn my story, get to know who I am. And I need you to value me. I need you to value who I am and value my conversation. Well, and I, and I heard Miles talk about that aspect. You're not looking at somebody and say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're all the same. He critiqued that. And, uh, and I think very right. well. I, I sort of want to hear what is the third option? Like understood right. his, his heart, which is, and I, by the way, agree with this heart, which is you've got like pros and cons. And, and I know that on one side of our brain, we think, how can anybody be against racists? We're Christians. We believe, you know, all of this. But really, we know that that the problem in our country is, is that there's a huge middle that kind of sees it and says, I want to change. Yeah. I don't know how to change. But really what's driving the hatred is sort of the extremes. And so right. his concept of saying we need a third option is great. But I still am digging deep to go, what is it that you said is the third option? Did you guys like like spell it out for me? And I mean, Joshua, he gets it from Joshua chapter five. Does that, do you guys know that? No, this is where he gets I, it. I mean, from. I want to so do it's a, I read yeah, it's, it's, again it's in I, Joshua chapter five when Joshua asks to this soldier who is the pre-incarnate Christ, "Are you for me or against me?" Right. And then so that's where he, he gets this premise, and then you know he says, "No, I, I'm I'm not. You know, I'm I'm the commander of the Lord's army." And so the, the idea is that, you know, there's these extremes and, you know, again, I'm not uh, trying to uh, uh, advocate that that's the primary well, <laughs> exposition of that text, but it's, it's really, it's something that I would never have seen or saw. And it's just, I think he's trying to paint the extremes in such a way where, 
you know, man, is there a third way to respond where we don't have to be for or against something? And and that's really appealing to me. I, uh, I mean, well, you know, I, it is because I, I don't want to label people. I think, and uh, I think, look, yeah. I think the problem with this discussion about racism is there's no space for political correctedness. I get yeah. that, but right. let me let me give you an example. And Derek, I'd love to hear your thought on this. Black Lives Matter. I mean, this is a constant conversation in evangelical right. spaces, particularly right. the conservative church. On and on, we hear this. Well, I am for Black Lives Matter, but I'm not for the organization. To me, when I hear the third option, I sort of think, why can't there be a third option? Why am I feeling always like there's a gun to my head going, you got to choose one or the other? I mean, from a biblical perspective, yeah, if I look at the whole organization's stance, I'd say, well, I'm not for the organization, but I love, I'm for Black Lives Matter. And I don't think I have to be in one of the categories or the other to say that I'm not for Black Lives Mattering. And and the truth of the matter is, is that I think when you get caught up on the organization or you get caught up on whether you're, to Ron's point, for me or against me, then sometimes you can miss the whole point of the whole conversation. You can miss what's actually happening. Right. You know, there's a there's a, there's a deeper um, connection. There's a deeper thing that we need to talk about here. And it's not whether you this is we're talking about injustice, you know, so it's not even just we shouldn't have to say black lives matter. if They really matter. Let's just let's boil down to the surface conversation, you know. So as a black man, the way I've grown up, I knew, you know, that, you know, that my life um, in certain people's eyes didn't matter. You know, it was mm. you know, I grew up in Gary, Indiana. That's my background. And then I went to high school, uh, primarily white. Uh, college prep high school where I had to learn how to navigate these different lines really early on in life um, from, that is different than many of my peers. And the reality is, is that I know when I get pulled over a police officer, I'm not thinking about the fact that I speed or did I not. I'm thinking about what is this man about to do to me? You know, so I'm going to make sure, let me keep my hands on the steering wheel. And it's because it's not because just my parents taught me that they weren't trustworthy. It's because of what I've seen throughout um, my community, uh, throughout history. Like, if you see a man in George Floyd, if you see somebody sitting on somebody's neck for eight minutes, I don't care what the dude did. That's not right. You know, that's not, that. that's in, that's injustice. Sure. It's, that's so not. So how would, like, the third option apply to that? You're right. You're sort of kind of going, like, who, where, I mean, even speaking about loving the person, who are right. you loving? If you say, I don't agree with it, the police has to do their job, then you're not loving an entire, you know, like, it's like you're get stuck with this. It's, you know, again, it feels a little bit politically correct, maybe, but which I don't know that that's his intent. I think his intent is to open up the space for conversation with totally. people who automatically would be like, well, I'm not listening to you. It's happening with the mask wearing, for that right. matter. Yeah. You right. see somebody without a mask, you assume what right. they are politically right. and yeah. in every sure. way. And so, you know, I think I like the concept of the third option. I don't know how it can be practically applied. I've come to this conversation with a very open mind with, and I'm sort of a mix. Like, I don't know what I am. Some people consider me a woman of color. <laughs> Other, you know, I, I think right. I'm Lebanese. I'm certainly not the average American. And, and in some ways right. I had a weird privilege in that my, my family was, you know, my dad was a doctor, so I had that privilege. Right. But we came as immigrants. I was 16 in high school. I spoke with it. I still speak with an accent, you know. So I get that. And my dad grew up dirt poor. Like, I mean, so sometimes yeah. I struggle with, well, you see me as white because my skin sort of looks white if you don't hear my last name. And, 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 but, but really, I mean, I don't feel like I have privilege. But yeah. then I'm told, well, you're white passing. So, so I'm trying to understand that and grow in that. But it, what you're saying, Lena, and in fact, I don't think there's enough people that want to have the conversation. You know, yeah. want to sit That's down it. and actually, right there. you know, That's it's good. like, oh, you just let's hit talk the nail about on the head. it. That's good. But as soon as I step on your toes, you don't want right. to have the conversation. Right. And so, you know, Ron did that with uh, Miles McPherson and they're having a conversation. But most people won't do that. You right. know, once it starts challenging your you know, demographic or dynamic and what you come from and your beliefs, then and it's cancel. like, oh, hold, hold up. Yeah, I'm counseling right. you. I, I don't want to do that. And so and we got to have a space where. It can get a little messy. You know, right. it, there, we got to have a theology of discomfort for gospel good. Like there's got to be some because we've been uncomfortable in our society. Our country is there has been racism and a history of it. And now systemic racism in terms of where it may not be as 
uh, overt, but it's it's covert. It's there. And, and so you got to have a dinner table conversation. Who are you sitting at your table with on a nightly basis? Um, who are you, who are the friends that you invite over? Um, are you good. actually listening versus talking? All right. I, I, I want to push us further, further into this. And it's especially interesting, you know, with your background as as an as an immigrant and how we talk and how. Um, we interact with one another. Miles talked about this idea of the table of five. There was a shooting there like in that. San Diego. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he had said the five seats at the table were the police and the police officer, the police department. But then there was the people who believed that that shooting was justified. Right. Mm-hmm. Then there's the other camp, the third chair, people who believe it was unjustified. Then you have the devil, you have the enemy, and then yeah. the fifth chair is is God. And I, I just believe even as, as you guys are all talking right. about this too, it's just like our, if our five chairs are often like, uh, one chair is somebody who looks like me. One, mm. one chair is somebody who talks like me. One chair is somebody who believes what I believe. Some chair, one chair right. is people who, uh, walk the way I walk and talk the way I talk. And, and so specifically, and the devil's on, always there. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like that was a jam Especially specifically at me. <laughs> but but this is where, and this is maybe unique as we've been having some conversations in our church and we were talking about how to have conversations with people, how to hear people. One of the things, just all, you know, all, all cards on the table has been talking to some of, of our immigrant friends that are going, man, if you had any idea what my story was, if you had any idea how hard it was for me to, to move to the U.S., and I, I wasn't born yeah. here, and I was, right. and, and almost comparing or trying to pit one against the other of, yeah, you actually experienced some really difficult things. I don't know your whole story, Lena, so I don't mean you in particular, but just immigrants right. that, are, that have immigrated to, to the U.S. And then Derek on the other side going, well, yeah, I mean... Great. I, I might have been born in America, but my ancestors didn't even have a choice to to, right. to be here, right? And so I yeah. just love to, to to dive deeper into that. How do we have the conversation addressing, which we've already talked about, how do we fully address this topic? Yes, love people. We love the idea of the third option, but we need to make change. We need to make progress without minimizing somebody else's story, recognizing that's just a completely different experience. It is. It's a different story completely. I don't even, the supplements and oranges, I don't think you can compare the two. I think that what the conversation about race happening in the, in the United States right now is, again, it's deep rooted. It's systemic to use that term. I mean, it's, it's years of decades and, and centuries of doing, it's, it's, you know, it's not that old, but a couple of centuries of doing um, life a certain way that has impacted an entire race. So I think any immigrant in the U.S. cannot fully understand that. I mean, we have our own struggles. It's not easy, but it's it's still different. And right. um, and it almost can sometimes be an edge. You know, you're a little right. interesting, right. exotic. Like it has its own, you know, sort of like, I mean, I can bring something to the medical school interview that other people don't have. Right. And so I think, I don't think it's fair for anybody to compare to two things but but the hurt of black people in white churches is that like the Trayvon happened you know on and on the George go on down the list of names nobody talks about it mm. it's like it's it's like a slap to the face it's not right. that who are you on the table it's like there's not even a table here and you're sort of looking over yeah. your shoulder going is anyone gonna say anything and it takes a George Floyd to finally go oh yeah maybe we'll talk about it and now there's years of anger going but we've been saying this for how long and I right. can hardly stand you know it, being ignored by a customer service rep on the right. phone now imagine decades of this so I don't think an immigrant can really feel that okay I think I think in that sense, my pain doesn't compare to the, 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 what people in the black community have seen happen to their family members. Every, I mean, I would imagine just like the Syrian refugees I work with, every black family has stories of people who have been in a, wrongly accused, prisoned, on and on, single moms that fell into, you know, all of the effects of, of race, you know, the abortion discussion takes on right. a completely different the light in this, in, 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 with that oh, yeah. in mind, which I think is, um, is hard. Yeah. And one, I appreciate your words and everything you just said right there. And sometimes I think that you can, some people can diminish the black experience by leveling it out with other experiences of other people that are here in America. And the reality is it's like, no, you weren't packed in slave ships and, taken from your people where you might have been a king or a queen or a prince and right. and now you come over here and you're nothing and 
we diminished what actually happened in slavery and even up through the civil rights movement into where uh, my wife is Belizean and white. I say she's half Belizean, half white, all fine. You know, she's she's my <laughs> woman. I love her. But we wouldn't have been able to get married 30 years ago. Right. You know, so there's just this understanding to where, you know, where you grow up being black in America means one thing, but being um, an immigrant means a whole nother thing. But there's still a conversation that needs to be had. And so even my black brothers and sisters that were not raised in America, but immigrated to this country. Uh, we have um, a guy on our board who's from London. He didn't even actually experience racism the way mm. he, you know, until he moved to America. And he's like, man, this is something that I, I've, I never really understood what it meant to be black because of, of what the differences of where I came from versus what's here in America. And, and here's the other thing, like it's not taught in schools, I mean, whether you're in a black yeah. school or, you know, it doesn't, the, the history books don't tell you the history. I mean, the reason I'm, I, I studied this throughout college and even in college, I had to go to the libraries and pick up my own books and figure out, you know, what's my history. So when I talk about people being ignorant, um, ignoring history, I'm not even just talking about white people. I don't think a lot of black people know their history. And so, you know, when you're fighting for the right uh, of your people and you're fighting for voting rights, I mean, that's not just let's vote today. You know, you know, what we had to go through to get a right to vote. Uh, you know what they did in sit-ins and being sprayed by water hoses and and all the things that would happen when you try to go in and register to vote or the women's suffrage movement. That was a whole different movement for black women. And so you have to really understand the history uh, of where you come from to understand the black experience. And not only are people not wanting to have the conversation because it doesn't stop there. I think you need to have the conversation to empathize. But in, if you truly empathize and it pushes you towards compassion and that's where it actually that's where you want to do something about it. A lot. One of the things that that I, I think a lot of uh, white people probably feel a slap in the face and it's probably a needed slap in the face is when we start talking about privilege. Uh, we start talking about white privilege, what that looks like. People get defensive. We're hearing mm -hmm. words more white supremacy. And and Miles talks about it a little bit. He talked about just um, about majority culture setting the rules. And he talked about the yeah. idea that, mm -hmm. that everybody has some sort of uh, privilege. I, I, I know, uh, Pastor Derek, you, you worked with, uh, with Brian Loritz, I think, for a while. You guys did ministry together. And he talks right. about this right. insider-outsider as well. It's, it's about stewarding whatever privilege that mm -hmm. we have. And so I, I'd just be really interested. I mean, by, by definition, Miles is kind of saying that um, privilege comes from the fact that I get to set the rules, who has set the rules. And if you're living in a majority culture because mm. the majority culture is the one that sets the rules, I don't know, a cursory glance at history to me, it seems like that che checks out pretty good. Yeah, and I, I, I value his words and I, I don't know probably half of the things or seen half of the things that uh, Miles McPherson has seen. You know, there's a you know a six year old man. He's he's lived through different movements. He's lived through different right. things that have happened that I haven't seen. I've only read about. Um, but I can see, you know, that Dr. Martin Luther King's dream hasn't necessarily come true. If you want to say, uh, there's still a fight for against unjust injustice. Uh, there is still a sense of uh, racial privilege uh, or white privilege. Uh, in in America, and 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 he, I think he eloquently put it well. You know, there is a system that has been um, not only created by white people, but for white people in America. And we can't. It's 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 always tough when people don't acknowledge that. Okay, let's just go back. You know, the Constitution said I was three fifths of a person as a black man. I was a slave, and I was working for you. It wasn't I? I wasn't an indent. Now, when we came, we were indentured servants, but that quickly ended. And now we're actually slaves. So I'm your property. So you never saw me as an actual individual. Mm -hmm. And that's where this country was actually formed. Um, the policing, you know, where we get police brutality and we actually understand this whole uh, the, the fraternal police order. Well, if you go back to when it was created, it was created to police slaves. It was to create bring them back. You know, so there's this system that was created. So it's not just saying like, oh, you're racist, there's systemic injustice. No, we go back to the creation of America and we read through the history books. No, it was actually created to give privilege to one actual race versus the other. And it's not gone. Uh, if you see the even documentary, I think it's 13th, yeah. um, or you see uh, Michelle Alexander's, uh, is it her book, uh, The New Jim Crow? And just, you know, behind 
uh, the prison system and what's actually there and black and brown being in prison, it's taken different forms and you see it come to fruition now that we got cell phones and we can tape it, which is still sad to me that you can sit there and tape something and not jump in. Um, so that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, well. But but we're seeing these things come to fruition now. Yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's an important distinction, too, of not just the majority culture having the ability to write the rules, but write the rules completely and utterly in their favor. I, I was hoping, Ron, you could speak to this. You have not been silent on the words white mm-hmm. privilege, yeah. even from the stage at uh, High Point Church. Why do you think it does come across feeling like such a slap in the face for for some? What are they so? What are they holding on to? What are they defensive of? Why is it so offensive to hear that? Well, we've had conversations, and I, I think the people white don't people believe, in particular, yeah, yeah. white people. Well, I'm I'm coming from that angle and and saying, you know, we don't think we have it, or they don't think they have it for a certain. You know, I didn't make the rules. I didn't write that rule. And Derek, it's what you're saying. It, it's you know, you got to go back and do a little lesson in history, which, you know, I mean, I I always want to be a learner. I mean, we want to lead, we want to learn. And I don't want to just empathize, which that's important, but I want to understand. And so, you know, we have, we've, you know, I've said it, I, I, I come from a very, you know, different background than, than, than you do. I mean, let's face it. I, I could say, you know, Hey, I was adopted as a little kid and, you know, man, I, I look at myself and man, I, you know, as a three month old baby, you know, I, I met my birth mom, you know, not too long ago. And I'm like, man, oh, man, if I would have been in that family, I, things would have looked a lot different for me. But uh, Jim and Helen Zappia, um, you know, adopted me. Uh, I'm an Italian. It was an Italian baby. They're Italian. You know, we everybody all looked the same and everything was good. You know what I mean? And, and they gave me advantage and privilege that I've just. Uh, you know, I, I, I just, it's unbelievable what happened as a result of that. So again, I, I don't want to say, uh, the reason I'm painting that picture is because I recognize that I got a privilege just by being adopted into an unbelievable family. You know what I mean? And so I think, you know, as a white person walking around here, there's certain things that I've never had to wrestle with. I've never had to struggle with. I've, you know, certainly had my run-ins with the law. I, I hate to admit it as a, you know, but, but, but I never thought the things that you thought. That's a I nice never, way of saying Ron likes to drive really, really, really fast. But you know what I mean? But, but there wasn't something, you know, and I had a conversation with, a, you know, an older man in our church. And, you know, he's raised three wonderful kids, an African-American guy. And, you know, he was, we interviewed him at our church and we're talking about this issue. And, you know, he talked about raising his kids and the lessons that he used to teach them uh, that, that I never would, my dad didn't have to teach me that, um, you know, never um, put something in your pocket or, you know, when you're in a store or something or never run out of a store, people think you're going to steal something, you know, what to do if, you know, if you get pulled over. Always take the receipt. Yeah, always. Oh, that was the thing. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me, Steve. He said, always have the receipt. Mm. And honestly, when he said that to me, I, I almost, I was crying. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I got three girls. It's like, I, I never had to get, yeah, you right. never had yeah. Right. <laughs> so I, I just, you know, I, so I do recognize um, that there is white privilege and, you know, we haven't been bashful about it. I, I think that that can, um, you know, as a pastor, uh, not recognizing these issues, not, you know, having uh, round tables around the race discussion. Um, it, it just feeds one particular mindset or one particular group. And I, I, I think that's I, problematic. I, I would say, and I know we've hashed this out so much, but I, I, he, Miles disarms you. I get, like, you can That's easily good. look at this and go, but white people can't understand it, you know, and, and they're not receiving and they're not seeing their sin. But I even think about, okay, so to me, like, the third option is sort of, what would Jesus do, in a sense, without yeah. trying bringing that down to that level. But even the sentence that Miles had said at one place I wrote it down, remember, you can be racially offensive and not be a racist. That sentence would be taken to task. The truth is, I think the third option sort of undergirds that idea of how do you really say it is a sin issue? Say whether it's systemic sin or individual sin or a little bit of both. You know, how did Jesus approach sin? Did he Jesus come to people and go, you are a sinner, you need to... Right. I, I think sometimes that this is the tension where the third option is needed. How do you come... And, and I, I don't know the answer. I think this is the tension of coming to, let's say, the white people and saying, man, man there's sin here. And now speaking it in a way yeah. that can be heard so that the conversation isn't yeah. bouncing off walls so that the people yeah. who are prone to hear are hearing, but the people who are not prone to hearing are not. That, to me is the third option. And and so his challenge That's is interesting good. too, but but I also feel like it doesn't go far enough. So you do a video and you say, I love you and here's why. 
But what I would hear if somebody said that, like as a woman, they say right. a woman in a church, somebody comes, oh, yeah, I love you, and here's why we love you. Being a woman. And my first question would be, but what are you going to do about it? Right. Yeah. And, right? And, and, and I that's think it. that's the part that needs to be, and it's, I'm sure it's in the book. Derek, last no, you, word. You're touching on it. I think, and so I talk about, you know, you're, you know, my white brother getting slapped in the face by something I might say. The reality is, is that for me to actually enter into that relationship, I know I'm going to get slapped in the face even more. Right. And so, so from a black perspective, there are many of us that are saying, I'm done. I'm not trying to, right. to step into that conversation. I don't, I'm not going to do, it's not about what would Jesus do? No, no, we got to fight now. Right. No. And I've told them enough, go read this, go read a book now, you know, it's time <laughs> for you to actually step up to the plate. And, and so that's where I think if you, if you boil down to the third option a little bit more, it's kind of hitting the head where it's like, I need my brother. I need my, my Ron Zappi or my friend to mm. say, okay, it's time for you to stand up. I've, I've, I, we've sat down, we've talked enough. Okay. Now it's time for you to actually go out here and fight for me. I need your voice to be heard. That's what the white church in particular missed doing the civil rights movement. Let's not miss it now. Let's not miss it again. It's not going to be my voice. They've heard enough of my voice. It's going to be all of our voices coming forward and saying, look, we're not going to stand for this injustice anymore. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Gospel, Culture, and Me, a leadership conversation focused on the intersection of culture and the church and how it affects our day-to-day lives. Hey, later this month, we're sitting down with Katie Cole, author of Developing Female Leaders, talking about the need to develop more women in church leadership in particular, regardless of theological perspective. I'm Steve Smith. Make sure to join us for that conversation next time on The Gospel, Culture, and Me. For more episodes, head to gcmpodcast.com.